Hey, it's Carolyn Glick. I'm here again this week in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Security Policy. Where we just had a terrific meeting here uh, with the colleagues. And one of my colleagues here at the Center for Security Policy in Washington is my also very good friend, Dave Wormser. Uh, Dave Wormser is an expert in all things having to do with the Middle East, um, particularly Israel, Lebanon, U.S.-Israel security relations. And in the past, he was uh, working in the Bush administration. Was You were Vice President Cheney's... Uh, yeah, I was uh, a senior advisor for John Bolton at State for three years, two years. And then uh, after... In the first Bush administration? First Bush, no, second Bush second, administration. Okay. Second Bush administration. And then after two years, from 2001 to 2003, was Bolton. And then after 2003, I was Cheney's senior advisor for the Middle East. Right. So you were really in the thick of it. And I am really pleased that we get to talk today because uh, it's always important to talk to Dave Wormser. <laughs> Again, I'm very lucky. We're very lucky to have him here today. Um, but also because one of your areas of specialty is Lebanon. And uh, we've just seen things heating up with Israel and Lebanon over the past week. Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah shot over 19 uh, missiles into Israeli territory last week. Israel uh, had a few pot shots at uh, at Lebanon and then just called it a day and said, mm -hmm. oh, look, we've deterred them. Everything is fine. And um, that's not really the story. And um, I just wrote my column for Friday's uh, Israel Yom, uh, where I said basically that what happened last week raises the prospect of war between Israel and at Hezbollah and two-front war with Hamas. Um, uh, precipitously. Um, and, I, and I thought, first of all, do you agree? No, I fully agree. You actually picked up on something that I'm afraid too many people here and certainly even in Israel don't realize. And it's something that you raised first in your article and then Gershon Cohen raised it yesterday, which is Israel's in a war. Israel's right. on the edge of a major war. Mm -hmm. And you can look at Hezbollah, you can look at Hamas. I saw some Israeli security types talking about, oh, you should respond to the missiles with Hamas, not with... It doesn't matter. This is all Iran. Right. It's, it's all a war with Iran right. and an encirclement. Right. And actually, um, uh, yesterday, uh, it was reported that uh, Iran just had the heads of Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Tehran. Uh, coordinating, mm -hmm. and they decided that they have to tighten their security coordination, meaning Iran's control over everything that they do. Um, and uh, obviously, the working assumption has to be that the next war, really like the war in 2006, which started in Gaza, that this is going to be a two-front war. Um, and you had a front row seat in the Bush administration during the uh, Second Lebanon War in 2006. And I really think you know, so much of this is related to that war. And so I really want to talk about that. But I actually want to go back because I think that uh, the strategic realities that we face in Lebanon today with Hezbollah effectively controlling the entire country uh, began with Israel's withdrawal from the its security zone that it had had from 1984 until 2000 on May 31st, 2000. And everybody in Israel wants to pretend that there was no strategic implications to that. So maybe we can just start yeah. with a little prelude to today's events by talking a little bit about 
your view of what happened with Israel's withdrawal from Lebanon and how it impacted the strategic situation. Right. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you raised that, Carolyn. And that, people don't go back that far, but it is really the key turning point. I remember Yossi Balin, who at the time was uh, was very significant foreign policy actor mm -hmm. in the Israeli government, in and out of the Israeli government. And he basically said, eh, these South Lebanese army, if we withdraw, yeah, they'll collapse. What do we owe them? And it was there was no understanding about the nature of Arab society. Uh, on one level, Arab society is still, you know, various cultures come from where they come from. Arab society, ultimately Islam, it came from the nomadic structure of Arab society, which means that as a as a tribal leader or as a nomadic leader, your basic objective as a leader is to protect your tribe. That's that's your role as a leader. And here was Israel, which is viewed in that context, abandoning its own, abandoning its ally, the South Lebanese army, right. and abandoning its own interests mm -hmm. and acting weak. And that had a huge implication for Israel regionally. It looked like Israel was, was, was crumbling. So I don't think you can separate the Israel perception very, of Israeli weakness. I think yeah. the Israeli left in general, but I think Israelis... Uh, I mean, the Israeli left specifically, and Yossi Balin was one of the most important and really destructive thinkers that the Israeli left has produced. He also is the, the, the father of, of the Oslo yeah. Accords, which were a strategic disaster. Um, and uh, so he, I think, was kind of the avatar of the Israeli left and, and to a large degree of the Israeli security establishment, which they don't seem to have a clear understanding of just how powerful they are. They, they think like children do, that what they do doesn't actually impact anything else. When Israel is actually the the, the gorilla, you know, yeah. in the middle of the room, and that's how it's seen. And so we leave a room, everything's messed up, and we think that nobody's going to notice, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, Israel doesn't understand its own power. No. And, and, and it doesn't understand the impact of, of, its, of its success on those around them, but also its missteps. And the the whole episode that you're focused yeah. on here, with with the 2000 withdrawal, this was a major misstep that created the perception of Israeli, um, the lack of Israeli power, the lack of Israeli will. Uh, I think so much of what happened since 2000 and the inability of Israel, essentially, to win a war since then, uh, is anchored to this perception of weakness and the un willingness by the Israeli security establishment to understand that there's this tremendous impact on their neighbors negatively right. for when Israel acts that way. Well, you know, Arafat saw the withdrawal from Lebanon and said, oh, okay, then Israel's falling apart yeah. and launched the uh, the terror war in September Precisely. of that year. Precisely. Precisely. It's a major thing. It's a major thing. I, I, I and, it, and the Israelis must begin to understand the nature of the region they work in, they live in. And these questions of power are not simply rhetoric. They are how, real in that region. How did Israel's withdrawal from Lebanon affect Hezbollah in Lebanon? Where was Hezbollah on May 30th and where was it on June 1st? Well, from the standpoint of Hezbollah, they made a very simple point, which was, listen, you Arab nationalists, Nasser, Ba'athists, Yasser Arafat, you waged your wars 
you negotiated, but you never, every time you waged war, there was less of Arab territory left. The, Israel got bigger. And you gave up and you signed with the Zionist enemy because you were so weak. You just delivered failure after failure. We Hezbollah, well, look at us. We didn't negotiate. We fought and the Israelis left. We're the first Arab army, the first Arab army to shrink Israel. And then Hamas followed soon thereafter uh, by pushing the beginning of the whole process of withdrawals, withdrawals. And the whole way this was cropped in Hamas's internal language was the but same. But that as was in 2005. That was, that was in 2005. But this is a process that set in, is this idea that they successfully threw Islam. So you think that sources. Hamas's beginning of the mortar fire against Israel, which started at the end of 2000, that, exactly. that, was, that was a consequence of the withdrawal from Lebanon? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I think that's that's the you can directly attribute the the the, the rise of Hamas's effective strategy uh, to the two thousand withdrawal from because America. of course the first suicide bomber was actually in in Lebanon in eighty two and mm -hmm. then um, then we had the first one after the Oslo Accords in ninety four so we already had had suicide bombing the whole. And it was, but it was the same thing. Remember, Israel already withdrew from good chunks of Lebanon before 95, right. 96. It was this whole idea that they, through their will and Islam and violence. It would forced, Islam, not Arab nationalism. Right. Islam, it's saying. Islam. It's not Arab. Did it have an impact on Al-Qaeda, do you think? Yeah, I think, I think it contributed to this idea in the region that the West, and remember, the, the, the view of Israel in the region is not the way Western elites like to look at Israel. We think, oh, the Israelis are their own thing, and we're not. We don't like to associate with them because we have to balance our interests. Right. For the Israelis, uh, I, I mean, mean for, for the, the Arabs, Arabs, yeah, Israel is nothing more than part of the West. So, if we're in the United States, not willing to defend Israel, it means we're not willing to defend ourselves, and the result is that. When Israel was showed itself as weak, and when the United States did in, say, 82, each affects the other and creates this regional climate that these Western countries don't really have the will to survive. You know, it's interesting because you're, you're, you're making me think of something that I hadn't thought of before, which was, um, you know, in 2003, in the lead up to the invasion of, of Iraq, uh, Ariel Sharon, who was the prime minister at the time, said to the Bush administration, look, you know, you should be going after Iran. Iraq is a spent force. The sanctions, the no-fly zones, they're no longer a threat. And, I, and Iraq is really the head of the snake. And uh, for various reasons, uh, the Bush administration decided to go into Iraq instead. Um, but maybe apropos the issue of the uh, decline of Arab nationalism and the rise of Islamism, um, maybe, maybe that reinforced the idea that the United States was afraid to go after Iran, that it wouldn't go to Iran, that it went to the weaker horse, that it went to post-98 Saddam Hussein, you know, with the bombing and the no-fly zones, that they chose him because they were afraid of Iran already back in 2003. Do you think that that, that, that was a thought that people thought, or did I just think it that was, for the no, first time? No, I think it's a thought that began to emerge in the wake of the Iraq war because of our failures. Um, I don't think the Iranians necessarily thought it at first because right after the war, they were terrified. Right. And You mean and right after the fall of Baghdad? Right after when, the fall of Baghdad, right. they were terrified. 
And the truth is the Iraq war really didn't make sense if it was an Iraq-only war. Right. doesn't mean the United States had to invade Iran necessarily, but the idea that we were going to deal with Iraq and we're done was a huge strategic mistake. Our primary enemy was Iran. And if you looked at Iraq in the context of Syria, Iran, and Iraq, right. and that all three have to end the day without being there anymore as, as their governments, um, then it made sense maybe to go there first and there but second. But that wasn't part of the concept. Of, of No, it wasn't part of Bush's concept. Bush, Bush, I don't really understand why he decided to do Iraq in the end. Uh, but but it, it wasn't really out of deep strategic uh, a maneuver or, or, or But actually, you know, I was an embedded uh, reporter with the Third Infantry Division uh, at the, you know, when, when, when the U.S. invaded Iraq. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, that was in March, and already in April, Hezbollah started sending operatives into the Shiite South sure. and, and organizing them so that they weren't, even if Iraq, even if Iran was terrified, they weren't paralyzed. I mean, they immediately no. sent in operatives and started undermining. Well, the, the opposite. They weren't paralyzed because they understood that the Shiite question in Iraq could kill them. So they, they, they knew this was a war to the death. And this is something I think, again, is currently uh, very applicable. We didn't understand in September of 2003 that we were already at war with Iraq. I in mean, Iraq. With, uh, with Iran. Right. That, that this wasn't anymore an Iraq war. This was now a proxy Iran war. Right. And then our primary enemy in Iraq was Iran, with Syria playing a, a very strong supporting role. So that goes back to uh, Lebanon, yeah. because Hezbollah was started, you know, when, like in 1988 or something, it was Amal Militia. Imad Mugnia was in Arafat's 417, and they kind of merged and they became... Hezbollah and their first attack, I think, was on uh, the U.S. embassy and the French embassies. Is that right? So that was in '82, and then '83 with the Marines and the Israeli paratroopers in in uh, Tsur. Mm-hmm. So, but the Americans never really, or maybe early on they did. I don't know. Did they ever acknowledge that this was an Iranian organization? I don't think they did, and I don't think even to this day we fully equate Hezbollah with Iran, when in truth, it is. It's simply an external... Div- I mean, it's even organized that way. It was, it was under the command, ultimately, of so the Al-Quds structure in, inside Iran. I mean, this is an Iranian unit, basically. It's a foreign legion. It's a foreign legion, exactly. Why do, why, what is the hesitation? Why is it... What is the conceptual uh, uh, roadblock... Well, I think the conceptual roadblock is that if you look at the Houthis right now and you look at Hamas, uh, the say the um, uh, the uh, Al Jabari's forces in the Hamas, and you look at uh, Hezbollah, and you if you acknowledge that they're basically Iranian divisions, um, then you have to admit you're at war with Iran, and there are consequences to that. It's something the West doesn't want to admit. It doesn't want. It keeps trying to maintain this fiction that they aren't at war with Iran. And I think that's the source of the problem. That is the source of the problem. I mean, Iran has been at war with the United States since 1979. Yes. And now we're in 2021. 42 years later, America is still in denial about it. Correct. Because 
Why? I mean, what do you gain from denying it? It just gets worse. As we're seeing now, they're, they're, they're weeks away from uh, independent nuclear capa- military capability. Because the, the policy implications are that if, it, if we're at war with them and they do certain things, then you really have to respond to it. And then you go up against the will and the, and the lack of will in the West to confront Iran. So if you, if you admit they're at war with you and you see they're building a weapon, a nuclear weapon, and you begin to realize diplomacy won't solve it, which is something we should have known from the beginning. Right. Because at the end of the day, Iran is about violating international law. So an agreement under international law doesn't mean anything to them. So the very essence of an agreement with Iran is useless. But if you admit that, and you admit that they're an enemy at war, actively at war with you, which, by the way, Iran doesn't hide, No. then when you see them developing a weapon, you know that when push comes to shove, you have to act. And that's not the... That's, of course, you know, the time the to act was in 2003, 2004, yes. when it would have been very easy to kill it in the bud. And it was at that time, you know, you worked with Cheney, you worked with Rumsfeld. I'll never forget it. And I, I we're digressing and we have to go back. But there was, I think it was while I was still in Iraq that... Rumsfeld, uh, they, they realized that Saddam had moved his chemical weapons into Syria after, before the United States invaded. And he said something about hot pursuit. I may be getting it a little bit wrong, but this is in my memory. And then like, you blink your eyes and Colin Powell, then Secretary of State, was in Damascus embracing Bashar Assad, uh, Assad as, as, a, as a partner. Yeah. And it was the message was so obvious that absolutely not over my dead body. We're not going to we're going to say that these borders are inviolate, that we're not going to go anywhere, that we we broke the pottery barn rule. You know, we're in Iraq. We're not allowed to do anything else. And it was sort of like from the outset, the the North Vietnam and Cambodia thing. Like, yeah. you can't go past the rat line. You can't stop the supply. You can't stop, which is, they were all coming from Syria and Iran, right? Yeah. No, I mean, it's like the old Viet Cong. Was it not or was it part of the North Vietnamese army? You see, there was a big debate before the Iraq war. Whatever happened in executing the Iraq war and not going further with Iran is one thing. But before the war, after 9-11, there was a very big debate, which was, what is the nature of terrorism? And Colin Powell, Richard Armitage, and others, their basic point was that it was a non-governmental actor. Terrorism should be treated like a crime. And as a non-governmental actor, you need governments to help you fight them. So they saw, and, and then they lived under this illusion that secular terrorists don't work with religious terrorists, et cetera, et cetera. And Sunnis and Shiites don't Shiites, work together. Sunnis and Shiites don't work together, et cetera, et cetera. But they could have used the laws of piracy, so, which they refused to use also, right? I mean, well, there were a lot of they things. They also that- did that, but what they, the most important thing that this led to was they saw Libya, Syria, and Iran potentially as an ally in fighting terrorism and Al-Qaeda. Whereas the rest of us said, you know, Al-Qaeda is like the PLO with Nasser. It became the language through which all these governments were executing terrorism. Uh, Iran had part of Al-Qaeda. Right. There were serious Iranian assets involved with Al-Qaeda. There were Iraqi, uh, in honesty, less than Iran. 
there were already the beginnings of some Syrian elements in Al Qaeda. What should one one day come out is how much how extensive there were Libyan elements of it with the Saif al Islam and 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 um, some of the groups in uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia and so forth. But the bottom line was Colin Powell and the British were pushing internally in the U.S. government this idea that the war on terrorism, because this was not a, gov a governmental issue, demanded peace process with the Palestinians and demanded coming to terms with Syria and Iran. And, and the, Iraq. the conceptual link that they made was what? The conceptual link they made was that they were as threatened by these terrorists as we were, and that uh, again, under but how idea, could they come to the idea that Osama bin Laden or Khomeini were, or anybody, were fighting in Iraq and in Saudi and all over the globe, really, because of Israeli communities in in Judea and Samaria and Israeli control well, over it, Jerusalem. Them, it, that is a, that's so, that's, that's well, like. What it, what it is, is if they, they felt like. That's blaming the Jews. So they felt, we have a problem with Al-Qaeda. So for them, this was never a war on terrorism or war. Ter and by the way, the United States really, even in 2005, we were trying to figure out uh, debate strategy. We were in a war for four years without a strategy. Um, but but it, what, what happened was, if if you see the Ba'athist regime in Syria as a secular Arab nationalist government, and oh God, they will never work with Al-Qaeda, and there's evidence they did, and the Sunni Ba'athist regime in, in Iraq, and they will never work with Al-Qaeda, and they did to some extent. Well, they became Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Right, exactly. And then, and then you had the same thing with Iran. Oh, they're Shiites. They would never work with the Sunni. So... All of a sudden, you say, well, we need to come to terms with them. But there's a big problem. We can't come to terms with Syria unless the Israelis give up the Golan Heights. And we can't come to terms with the PLO, which is secular in their mind. It never was secular. But that was the idea, that this secular Arab nationalism was our ally against, against this religious terrorism. So it drove these people like, like Colin Powell to be desperate about coming to terms with these S uh, Arab nationalist movements. So what Syria, is so odd PLO. about that? And and what's so odd about that? And we'll just leave, maybe we'll just leave it there and then go back to Lebanon for a second. But what's so odd about that is that all of these discussions were taking place after the peace process collapsed because Arafat rejected statehood in July 2000 and went to war. So that, you know, the offer had already been made by yeah. Clinton in December 2000, by Barack in in, in uh, July 2000 at Camp David, and then in subsequent months, it had already been made. Everything that they said was the key to everything had already been given and it didn't open that door. I mean, it, it like there was nothing, it, it had already failed. Their whole conceptual yeah. model of the Middle East had failed and it, and it didn't fail. You know, it wasn't ancient history. It's time to try it again. It was the day before yesterday and there was terror in the streets of Israel yeah. that entire time. So that doesn't make any well, sense. Well, what happened was at the end of the day, it was precisely because it failed so catastrophically, they couldn't walk away. What, what? what, what happened was, so you had an elite who had for 20 years argued, starting with the Vienna, uh, not Vienna, the Venice Accord mm -hmm. in 1979 with the European elites, which then spread easily to the United States' elites, that 
the Palestinian issue really is, they, they accepted essentially Arafat's uh, formulation of the problem, that it's the basic problem in the region. You can't get beyond it. You can't have regional peace until the Palestinian issue is solved. So really the entire Middle East policy establishment in Europe and in America became deeply invested over two generations in resolving the Palestine, uh, resolving the uh, right. peace process in the Palestinian issue. The worst thing they had going for them was what, what made it such a laboratory. It, it, rarely in history do you get a laboratory perfect application of a theory. But the Oslo process was. They, the Soviet Union had collapsed, so the PLO was without mentor. The Israelis had you know, essentially won, uh, but the Israelis gave in on their own and said, let's recognize the PLO, essentially admitting that they're going to allow a Palestinian state to be created. Right. So this was everything everybody had said for 20 years, right. if only, if only, if only. And they got their laboratory applica perfect application of that, and it catastrophically failed. Right. So, so why did they let go? Well, because they found a way not to admit failure. The way is, well... They were enemies of peace. Well, if only Rabin hadn't right. been killed. If only there aren't Hamas and the Iranians. And then the Iranians sort of became a boogeyman for the peace process failure. Um, well, these are Hamas's Iran, and uh, and and these. Then Iran. it was Iran. Now it's no longer. Now, now it's no longer, of course. But you see that that's where this whole idea that this this religious re, re, regional religious terrorism uh, is against Arab nationalism. Now I have to tell you the truth of the matter is that this is so it's just insipid. It's so stupid that it's hard for me to get around the. The obvious conclusion, which is that it's about something else completely, which is anti-Semitism, right? Because, yeah. I mean, it really is just about saying the Jews are are the problem. The Jews are to blame. You know, if we can just get the Jews to act different, then everything will be fine. It's the same idea of the, of the West constant rejection of the perception of the West and Israel in the eyes of the Arabs. They wouldn't see, you know, Israel this way. I mean, I saw it when in Iraq, it was so... Uh, irritating or infuriating, which was that, you know, if you wanted to understand what you were getting into when you went into Iraq, then the best place to look for guidance was Israel's war in Lebanon. Correct. For, because demographically, they're so similar, yeah. right? And, and if you want to understand the system that you're about to upset, then go to a system that's like it and see. But I said that to one of the officers in, in the unit that I was with, and he said, but you guys we're the occupiers and we're the liberators. Yeah. So that, it, you know, from the get-go, there was this concept that we can't learn anything from Israel's experience because it's sui generis, because Israelis are the bad guys and we're not like them. When the Arabs, and, you know, I, I read this Marine guy's um, uh, memoir of the massacre at the U.S., at the Marine barracks, and he was talking about how stunned they were that they go into Beirut and uh, push the Israelis out, and um, and then they received the same treatment as the Israelis, that, yeah. that the Lebanese, all the various groups in Lebanon viewed the Americans as just a replacement for the Israelis. And they were like, but wait, we're here, we're, beyond, we're better than the Israelis. And they're like, you're the Israelis. No, you actually, know? we're worse because the Israelis, if they were powerful, and remember they were powerful, they could actually be useful for some of these uh, right. forces in the region who want to survive, and maybe Israel could play some role in surviving. You know, every time you go to Jerusalem, you pass through Abu Ghosh. Right. And that, that was an Arab yes. town. Yeah. Right. And everybody goes and he's homeless there and so forth. 
and it's part of the Israel that was already since day one of right. Israel. The reason for it was the tribal leader of the of the community of Abu Ghosh d- decided, you know, these Jews are going to win, and they're pretty powerful. So it's in my interest to side with them. Right. And if if we remember that, actually, Israel might have more. You know, currency. Arafat said about Abu Ghosh, like famous uh, statement by Arafat, which was that they were that he was the first people that he was going to kill when he took was over Abu Israel Ghosh, was with, yeah. with the people in Abu Ghosh. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so if Israel actually thought and acted from the mentality of being a strong country, yeah. it actually will find that it is more likely to have regional following than the United States. Right. So let's go back to uh, Lebanon. So 2000, Israel withdraws mm-hmm. and Hezbollah makes a statement, you know, to the Arab world, Nasrallah basically says, see, we won where you lost. See, mm-hmm. Islam is king. We did it right. You did it all wrong. What happened to Hezbollah between um, May 31st, 2000, when Israel left, and July 2006, when they started attacking Israel in what became the Second Lebanon War, which was really, I think, the first Israel-Iran war. is the transformation from a a squad-level terrorist organization to an army, an army that still employed terrorism. They didn't give up on that old structure, but it was an army. Uh, it was essentially the forward units of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard or Islamic uh, Revolution Guard, so IRGC. So that's the transformation. And you then started seeing across the region training of other terrorists in Mashhad in Iran and elsewhere the same way. Uh, So you really began to create a threat to Israel. The other thing is in Israel, I think there's a very... It, you know, as 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 it used to be very, uh, I did my PhD and we studied. I studied very carefully the Israeli military evolution. I thought it was a very brilliant idea that the Israelis had a different concept for what they call bitachon shotaf and bitachon psisi. Bitachon psisi, which is basic um, uh, security, security, is something that will come and kill you as a nation. It will destroy you as a nation. Like an invading army. Right. And Bitochon Shotaf is there's a terrorist bomb planted in a market somewhere. And that sort of categorized it as an irritant. What I don't think was ever appreciated is these are not different things. In the Middle Eastern way of war, that current security or Bitochon Shotaf, that planting the bomb in the market, is a strategy that eventually leads to a, a basic security threat. So it, the Israel. Well, I, I think, think that I'm not. I, I understand what you're saying, but I think that what you're what you're pointing to is something else, which is that Israel Israeli military thinkers have a problem with understanding the difference between tactics and strategy, Correct. and as a result, they often have a tra- st- tactical viewpoint that they glorify as a strategic right. viewpoint, and. And and th- so they can't understand that. Obviously, you know, if you look at the difference between how Israel is able to cordon off an area and limit the security threats to say what happened in Nice on Bastille Day a couple of years ago when 81 people died when they were rammed by a truck, that would never have happened in Israel because we have the tactical doctrine for right. protecting an enclosed area. Yeah. And very good at it, but 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 that's not strategy. That's that's a way of dealing with a secrete kind of threat. Correct. But for the Muslim side, for the Islamic side, it is a strategy. Right. And 
when you look at the transformation- Because it's talking about breaking down a society. Right. So you see the transformation of Hezbollah or the transformation of Hamas over the, over the period of the last 20, 30 years. It, it, it was never appreciated that this was all part of a strategic assault designed to destroy Israel. This is not over borders. This is not whatever issue they thought. It, this is an, a war to destroy Israel, and therefore deterrence and acts of deterrence are inappropriate to think about. When you, or at least the way we think of it, is inappropriate to think about. So the, the transformation exposed what the real essence was of Hezbollah, but it also radically transformed its capabilities. So when you get down to it, this was the failure of, of I think it's a big reflection of the failure of Israel's security establishment, tradi traditional security establishment. So that gets us really to, to July of 2006. Mm -hmm. So Israel had just been fighting in Judea and Samaria in Operation uh, Defensive Shield when it retook the uh, population centers uh, in uh, the Palestinian Authority to end the, their sort of the, their operation as mass terror bases that were exporting suicide bombers to Israeli uh, population centers on a daily basis. So Israel just had some very significant success in handling that. But then they get into Lebanon in 2006, and they're beset by a completely different structure and level of threat and, and armaments that they were ill-prepared for, ill-equipped to deal with both psychologically and, and, and militarily. Well, I think this came out of the peace process. I think there was a real feeling that Israel will not fight any more wars, that Oslo removed from the template of potential threats. There was the nuclear threat from Iran. There was terrorism threat. But there wasn't any more the conventional threat to Israel. That and was this was a hybrid, high, but Hezbollah is a hybrid conventional threat in the sense right. that you don't have armored divisions, you don't have air force, you have all of these things that are kind of complementary you know, they're, they're directed di directly at blowing up Israeli stuff, right? They're not about there, it's like an it's like an army that was built around just destroying an army, right? Exactly, but it was an army on army thing, and that's what Israel had removed from its mindset that there will be another war. So defense spending and uh, was was reduced. Major military programs were abandoned. That, for example, there were answers to the coronet missiles against tanks that could have been deployed by the time of the 2006 war. But there was a strategic decision. We don't need it anymore. We don't need it because the next war is going to be God knows when, if ever. And so let's put our money elsewhere. Let's either take it away from defense or put it in research, or, which I'm not against research, but the opposite, I, I think. The Israelis are very good at research, but the bottom line is they, they had a real threat and they needed to address it, and they just didn't think that it was real. It was a failure on the level of the 73 war, the conceptia, the concept, failed. Uh, you, you even had Shimon Perez out there saying Israel shouldn't waste its precious territory for things like infrastructure. That's what Arab territory could be used for. Israel could put its airport in Jordan. It could put because there are not going to be any more wars. So why do you have to think militarily and territorially? Well, that, that was, was the, the other mentality. thing. Was that that was the other thing? I mean, that I was waiting for you to get to it, which was that between two thousand and two thousand and six, Hezbollah became the sole controller, really the the uh, 
the uh, sovereign in South Lebanon. Yes. And so they controlled that territory before 2000. We controlled, I mean, we didn't do a good job of it, but we we blocked that from happening. Yeah. And when we left, Hezbollah just took over. We, there was no, we were, you know, we, be, we began as, as controlling. And then by the end, we kept constricting ourselves and constricting ourselves. We thought we, if they can't see us, they won't, they won't hit us anymore. But, um, but then, but at least we were there. Yeah. But once we were gone, they just took over all of the villages in South Lebanon. Completely. And, and so that was the other thing that we, it was like people just weren't paying any attention, right? Well, they weren't paying attention to that. And this is a big this is a big thing you're mentioning here, because it also came after Oslo. Israel, in the span of five years, abandoned hundreds, if not thousands, of its allies across the line. And the signal was sent, don't be an Israeli right. ally, don't be an agent, don't work with Israel, you will pay. And, and so you have to link the withdrawal from Lebanon and the impact of that with the withdrawal from uh, uh, Judea and Samaria in, two, in, in 1993, four, five, six, right. uh, and the massive slaughter internally of agents and friends and allies of Israel. This was a very important breakdown. And I think Israel suffered from an intelligence point of view horribly after this, which then had the added on effect of being blind for all for way too much. You're talking about both vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians and vis-a-vis -vis yes. the Lebanese. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just remember I was interviewing these, the, the South Lebanese army uh, veterans were, it was in 2000, the summer of 2000, and they were having a, a rally, a demonstration, a protest uh, in Tel Aviv outside of the uh, city hall there. Uh, and they and I was talking to them, I was interviewing them for the paper, talking to them, and they were impassioned. We gave blood. We gave you our blood when they blew up your paratroopers in, in, in Sur, in, in Sidon. And, and you are our brothers. We fought side by side with you. So even if we thought, like we thought, ugh, they're mercenaries or whatever, you know, whatever the, the commanders were thinking about them, they didn't think of themselves that way. No. And they didn't think of us that way. And we never saw them through their eyes. We never saw ourselves through their eyes. And, you know, these weren't just, these were spurned, spurned allies and they felt so angry. And it was the same thing that we did with these Palestinians. We called them collaborators as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, spies or agents, you know, and like, there's something very tawdry about being a collaborator. We're your enemy. You're not supposed So instead of so we also demeaned them. I was yes. working in the army. I was working on the, we built up a, a, a unit to uh, help resettle collaborators. But it was this concept that there was something morally compromised about people who were working with us yeah. to prevent terrorist attacks. And yeah. again, it's like this idea that we're not worth anything. We're not important here. We're, we're in the wrong, which is a very leftist Israeli way of looking at things, of embracing right. this idea that Israel is the problem. So the smaller we are, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, the use of the word collaborator, this, these were the agents of the Nazis in World War II. That's where that word gained its connotation. Yeah. Coco Chanel. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so to, to employ that already revealed the idea that the Israeli left who wanted to withdraw looked at themselves as an evil occupying right. force in the cradle of Jewish civilization. So, 
So in 2006, we go to war, we're flying blind, we don't understand the enemy, we don't understand enemy society in a way, it, like we learned everything the Americans wouldn't learn from us. And then we forgot everything, yeah. right, that we had learned and we went in there as if we had never been there before. Sure. And and what how what happened? What happened in, in the Bush administration? How... You know, I saw it from my perspective in the Jerusalem Post. You saw it from your perspective well, uh, in the White what, House. What we didn't understand was that the American sickness had affected Israel. And by that, I mean that that there were no wars with victories anymore. Uh, the Vietnam War in America was the first war we fully lost because we decided victory wasn't really an option. Wars don't result in victories. So what happened with Israel was... They had that mentality, but we in the United States still looked at Israel the other way. Uh, we thought we thought Israel was still the traditional concept of war, and so when the war began in the inside the Bush administration, specifically Vice President Cheney, number of others, they understood this to be a strategic event vis-a-vis -vis Iran. If you remember, Syria had been kicked out of Lebanon at that point, and Hezbollah was somewhat in trouble. And there was a debate within Hezbollah. This was after Hariri was born right, in exactly. 2005. And the March 8th movement and so forth. And Hezbollah, basically, you could see that many of them were scared. And they were saying, well, these Israelis can be crazy. And if we do anything, they'll destroy us. And the Iranians turned around and they said, you're destroyed anyway. I mean, you're finished. Your position in Lebanon is finished. Unless we change the strategic uh, perception in the region. So your survival, ironically, is is contingent on you falling on your sword to make Iran look like the powerful future force. And then that will redound back to Lebanon and reestablish your position there. Otherwise, you're in a linear path to destruction. So the, the Iranian view of Hezbollah won over those few local commanders who were scared. And they, they went to war. The United States understood this. Cheney and, and, and Elliot Abrams and others understood this as a major strategic event. And it was imperative that Israel be given the room to win. Right. Our assumption was Israel was going to win and, and go, go for the jugular. And we waited and we waited and we waited. And I hate to say it, but we concocted all sorts of ways to keep Condoleezza Rice busy um, and so forth to keep her out of the picture because she didn't see this this way. How many weeks? I forgot. 40 days, 45 like 33 days. 33 days. 33 days. This went on and there was no victory and there was no victory. And the Israelis went in, came out, went in, came out, went in, came out. And in the end, it, it, it undermined the camp inside the U.S. government that was tough on Iran, saw the need for a series, uh, really a campaign to make Did Iran Did you ever have any conversations? I mean- what you were saying about Israel and the way that we th we saw things and how Oslo, you know, uh, it, how Oslo impacted our, or blinded us to strategic realities or the thinking that brought Oslo was itself blindness and then it continued to pervade our our top military echelons mm -hmm. and also strategic. So, you know, uh, Olmert had given this speech to the Israel Policy Forum where he said, "We're tired of fighting. We're tired of winning." Yeah. Um, which was stunning. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, he knew, he, he had run 2006 a campaign to reenact the withdrawal from Gaza in Judea and Samaria. And he was talking about, you know, taking, expelling 100,000 Jews from their homes. And so for him, he was in a bind, right? Because he had this plan to withdraw from territory. The, the attacks that we had received just a couple weeks before Hezbollah began to strike, I said it started in, in, in Gaza with Gilad Shalit was kidnapped yes, and then the bombing exactly, and everything. Exactly. So it actually started in Gaza. They were already proving just months after the withdrawal that it was a complete strategic catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to continue it in Judea and Samaria. Then comes Hezbollah in the first place we withdrew from proving yet again what a disaster it would be if we left. But he was stuck politically in a bind because if he actually recognized that he had to control the territory that had been seized by Hezbollah over six years in order to win, then he would have had to renounce everything that he had uh, come to embody and, you know, to embrace as his strategic vision for a smaller, more compact Israel that could be tired of fighting and tired of winning. Well, in Iran and Hezbollah, those those who were uh, uh, willing, wanting to go to war um, knew that. That's exactly what they expected. Is so they Israel, understood Israel. They understood Israel because Israel said that's what it was. The, the Israelis weren't hiding the fact under Olmert and others that they essentially had given up on controlling territory and they were just... just Please build a wall. Let me be on the other side right. of it. And they knew that Israel wasn't. So if Israel is about to withdraw from more area in the West Bank, the last thing that Israel could countenance is reoccupying part of Lebanon. This was the whole essence of what Balin and the withdrawal from South Lebanon. It was a catastrophe. So they couldn't reoccupy. And Hezbollah knew it. Iran knew it. So they knew whatever would happen in the war. That's replaceable. It's equipment. People are replaceable for Hezbollah, too. So they knew whatever cost they have, the one thing that they would come out of this knowing is that the Israelis do not have the will so, to pay the price. Okay, of so you're, you're in Cheney's national security staff, right? Mm-hmm. And you guys are watching this. And Elliot Abrams is pushing uh, Condoleezza Rice into giving yeah. her busy work in something totally different so that she won't be coming in with, you know, the Colin Powell policy of mm-hmm. withdrawal. Did you talk to the Israelis? Yes. What, well, what happened? Uh, like, we what? were. And what, well, first of all, Condoleezza Rice was talking to the Israelis. Well, she was talking to Livni. She was talking to C.P. Livni in there and started the, a big problem, which was in every cabinet meeting in the United States, you heard the line, but the Israelis don't want to win. The Israelis don't want, they want us to save them and impose a ceasefire. So what was Sipi Livni telling Sipi, her? Sipi Livni was turning around to her cabinet and saying, the Americans want a ceasefire and they want it now. And this was Condi and Sipi Livni. This wasn't actually the policies of, uh, well, I don't know if it wasn't the policy of Omar, but it certainly was not the policy of President Bush and and, and Vice President Cheney. And, and so, uh, it, it just... We wanted Israel to win, and and we were not willing to stop Israel. We were we were the opposite. We wanted to give Israel whatever room it needed to have to win. And so what C.P. Livni was telling her government that that um, the United States is trying to impose a ceasefire was it might have talking been, to Bush. Might, might have been talking to Condoleezza Rice, but that was not the U.S. government. But position. was Omer talking to Bush about this? He might have been, and maybe that, and maybe he expressed himself to Bush the idea that. I don't know what Olmert basically told Bush, 
But at the end of the day, the signal was sent very clearly, Israel doesn't have the will to win. And, and this had a major effect on the American government because afterwards, in the very first cabinet level meeting following it, Condoleezza Rice made the very strong point that you see, even the great power of the Israeli army can deliver no victory. It can't, it, military force doesn't work. You have to address root causes. And, and what I, are the root causes? And you know what? I remember there was a, there was a conversation between Blair Prime Minister Blair of Britain and Bush. And Blair at one point basically told Bush, the Iranians are getting close. You know, I got to start knowing what are, what are your intentions here with Iran? And Bush said, there's some of those in our group and our cabinet who are pushing for war. But as we learned in Iraq and in Lebanon, force doesn't solve anything. So right then and there, what year was that? This was 2006, 2007. For those of us on the inside, it was clear. The United States will not take military action to stop Iran, and, and, um, which means they're not willing to stop Iran because there's no other way to stop them in the end of the day. And then you had the National Intelligence Estimate right. in November 2007. And I'm not saying that other, there weren't people in the U.S. government who were still saying that you must do that and hoping that somehow they could prevail on President Bush. But the truth is, because of the 2006 war, the internal balance of power in the U.S. government shifted toward Condoleezza Rice fully and toward the idea that use of force in the Middle East is causes more trouble than it's worth. So that really brings us to where we are today, right? Because mm -hmm. now fast forward 15 years. Yep. So we left that war and basically Hezbollah won, you know, because Israel yes. achieved none of its military objectives. And from then on, Hezbollah has just become more and more and more and more powerful. Yeah. And now they well, have the 150,000 missiles. It showed everybody that Israel wasn't willing to pay the price of winning. And that was the signal sent to Hamas. To this day, Israel lives under the shadow of that perception, correctly on some level, that Israel isn't willing to win in Gaza. It isn't willing to win against even the PLO and the- Look, Wakanda. you know, in a way, I kind of agree with the concept of not winning in, in, in Gaza in the sense that when you have people uh, saying, well, what we really want is to bring the PLO back into right, well, <laughs> Gaza, you're better off just keeping them separate. So, well, you got two different Palestinian entities and what sort of state would you want? You know, and what are you talking about from a political perspective? It's much easier for Israel uh, with Hamas in charge, but obviously not with the kind of firepower that they're able to bring well, yeah. back. Again, it's you the, know. it's the base. Again, Here, there's only a military strategy. There is a bigger failure, which is the idea that somehow you can build a wall and go away. So if, if, if Gaza isn't under Hamas, well, we got to find somebody else to put it under. And, um, you know, I think the Lebanon, the, the Gaza war two months ago told us one thing, which is positive control of the territory from from the Jordan all the way to the Mediterranean. How the politics of that inside has worked out is another question, but the positive control under the Israeli army is essential. There cannot be military forces operating in those regions, whether it's Hamas or the PLO, uh, and, and yet have Israeli security. It's impossible. So true victory wasn't to turn to destroy Hamas and turn it over to the PLO. The true victory is to start over. That, that, that essentially Israel had to go back to the conceptions of 2005, 
go back to the conceptions of Oslo and come to terms with the fact that the whole concept of Oslo, of finding a beholden Arab force, turning it over to them in a sign of weakness uh, and giving them their aspirations as if we were in the wrong and de demonstrating along the way that Israel has no will for victory. Um, that's a disaster. And that, so that's the question what's really is, so last week, out. last week, Hamas, I mean, Hezbollah, Hamas attacked Israel with thousands of missiles in May mm -hmm. and was given, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in reconstruction uh, pledges from mm -hmm. the U.S., from the EU, from the U.N., from Qatar and from mm -hmm. Egypt, you know, all of these countries. Uh, Hezbollah uh, attacks Israel with 20 missiles and the United States gives us $100 million in aid. Um, where are we now? 15 years later, uh, you know, there was a fight. Condi won. Mm -hmm. Then you had Obama. You had a little bit of Trump. And now you're back with Obama, uh, with yeah. Biden. And uh, I mean, what? It's deja vu all over again. I but mean, with much more powerful weapons. Much more powerful weapons and more dangerous enemies. But the concept is the same, and it failed. And the concept, you know, there are other ideas that were involved here, uh, secular, nationalism, and so on. And so, the, the bottom line is that, that there is a fundamental belief that Israel has to pay a, a pound of flesh in order to make peace on the Palestinian issue, which then allows the United States to have proper relations with the rest of the Arab world. The fundamental idea is that the Zionist enterprise has to be balanced against the Arab enterprise. And if you go back to the historical record of 1919 onwards, it is not actually valid, uh, namely the consistent attempts to appease Arab nationalism at the expense of Zionism actually led to a greater period of anti-Westernism, whether it's the British with Hajimin al-Hussein right. or the white paper. The historical record is actually 100% consistent. It's crazy. And yet the concept is the opposite, that right. you have to balance it. And balancing it means you have to take a pound of flesh from the Israelis and give it to the Arabs. And that the reason why it doesn't work is because the Arabs look at Israel as part of the West. I don't think that they, that's the only reason. There is anti-Semitism too. I, I can't deny it. Um, look, I always point to the issue of Jerusalem. Um, the West has this attitude of Jerusalem. Well, it's, it's Muslim. You know, East Jerusalem is Muslim. Well, I don't know a single Muslim in the world that considers the Temple Mount the first or second holiest place of Islam. Really, they don't consider it holy at all. But I don't really know a Jew who thinks that the Temple Mount is not at the top of the list. But it's not just that. I mean, and, I was thinking you were talking about Hajimin Husseini. So, you know, uh, I wrote about this in, in my book, The Israeli Solution, because it was so, it's so stunning, right? I mean, yeah. the British sided with this terrorist, his uh, Arafat's you know, godfather or whatever, uh, and um, and tried to destroy the Jewish political entity in pre-state yeah. Israel in order to appease him, blocked Israel, blocked Jewish immigration from Europe under Nazi control, essentially ensuring, acting as Hitler's silent partner by blocking Absolutely. any avenue of escape for the Jews, and even trying to block them from coming to America and everywhere else. Yeah, and so the British were very much the junior partners in the in the genocide. 
And they did this to appease Husseini, who then went and became, first he he incited a Nazi uh, uh, revolution in Iraq, Yes. Right, that they had to bring in soldiers. To fight. I thought he did that in Lebanon. No, no, but you're right. You're right. In Lebanon, yes, but sir. but but they had to fight a war in Iraq in the middle of World yeah. War II to bring down this this Nazi government, and then in 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 Iran as well. And so he and and then he incited the entire world as a Nazi from Berlin on ra- on shortwave radio throughout. So that they did. By the way, he was also so impressed with the gas chambers. He actually sent a unit to help. So all I was going to say was that actually it's not West, right? It's something specific, Anglo-American. It's um, it, it's Judeo-Christian because they liked the Nazis. You know, the the Arab yeah. youth groups they styled themselves after the the Hitler you 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 know the Hitler youth, and they wore their uniforms and they liked the Nazis. They they yes. that, and the Nazis are, was heavily based right, on and them. the Nazis are and the Nazis are Westerners, right? They're from Europe, so it's not exactly West. It is. It's Jewish, it's Judeo-Christian, if you want, yes. but I mean, it's a specific kind of West, it's right? It's a specific kind of West. That's exactly it. It's the West that was anchored to the British Revolution, the American Revolution. It's a liberal nationalist West, um, not in the modern sense of liberalism, classic liberal nationalism. Yeah, John Stuart Mill nationalism of yeah. George Washington. And it was a renaissance. It was really a renaissance view. Right. I mean, it's it's really the American Revolution is sort of the culmination of the renaissance. Right. Not not necessarily as much the Enlightenment as the renaissance. But at any rate, that's what they were going after. The same place communism, communism was going after it. Nazism was going after it. The Islamic world, whether it's based on ideologies influenced by the Muslim, by the Nazis or Islamic forces, the Muslim inside, Brotherhood, Sayyid Qutb, and so forth, this was the enemy. This was the real enemy. Um, it was that brand of politics they hated the most. And so now we're looking at the Americans, and to a degree, the Israeli government, which doesn't have any strategic concept today at right. all, right? And so they fundamentally cannot understand like they like their brain cannot compute you know like will not compute kind of thing they they cannot understand at all lebanon right no and it's just a disaster waiting to happen in fact it's already happening i mean look they, they 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 believe in deterrence which doesn't work against hezbollah they believe that there's a lebanese government you can lean on to rein in Hezbollah. They don't understand Lebanon doesn't exist. Right. It is nothing more than a fiction to allow Hezbollah domination of that piece right. of territory and to suck it dry using the state institutions to literally like a vacuum cleaner, suck all the assets and money out of the country to sustain the Iranian revolution. So, you know, it, to, to look at Lebanon as an independent country, you know, it, it reminded me, you know, it's, it's like trying to threaten the Polish government in the Cold War with nuclear incineration if the, if the Soviets hit us. It's, yeah. they, they were nothing but a minion, that right. government. It was the Soviets we were dealing with in Poland, right. Czechoslovakia. It wasn't, it wasn't no. indigenous. What, so what has to happen in order to actually deal with this? You just have to deal with it. Well, in terms of Lebanon specifically, to deal with it, uh, I think, unfortunately, 
the governmental structures are so compromised that you have to essentially start over. One has to look at it like Europe after World War II, uh, where, where you had an... I don't know why after World War II, it seems to me that it's very much Nazi-occupied. Europe, uh, no, Europe, and uh, that is like, for example... Um, no, I think it's France in 1943, not France in 1945. Oh, you mean Lebanon, that Israel, or the United States? No, I'm saying that... It's saying that you have to reconstruct Lebanon as if it's Germany in 1945 misses the point that actually it's not because uh-huh. the Nazis are still in charge. Right. Okay. No, I meant, okay. What I meant was that when we went into Japan and we went into Germany, we dismantled the government structures. Right. We, we realized we had to start over in those countries. So what we're really saying is that there's no diplomatic solution. No. There's only a military problem no, right you now. Can't. There's no, because who are you going to? engage with anything you deal with that is called the Lebanese government right now is an is a tentacle of Hezbollah right and so, they're not going to they're not going to change so I think that if we want to end this conversation uh, with some uh, aside from the analysis with, with some sort of a prescription I think it's to take what Condoleezza Rice said at the end of the Lebanon war and turn it on its head yes that actually military force wasn't properly implemented or used in 2006, much as it was not used properly in 2005 in Iraq. And Mm. that if that you don't, you don't replace a failed military strategy with a failed diplomatic strategy, which is even less connected to reality than a failed Mm. military strategy was you, you replace a failed military concept with a successful one, right? Right, exactly. And it starts with the concept of victory. Victory causes it, it 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 triggers regional dynamics that help the victor um it's the middle east doesn't reward losers doesn't reward those who compromise and give away it's a sign of weakness at the end of the day it rewards victors so if israel the united states give up the concept of victory they've given up any hope of working with anybody in the region they've given up the hope of having any proper relationship with anybody around them the UAE did not sign an agreement with Israel because it thought it was a big, great compromiser. It signed with Israel because it thought it was powerful and knew that it was powerful and was willing to stand up even to the United States to do what it had to do on Iran. You know, that really just points, and, and maybe this will be my last remark, and then I'm going right. to give you the last word. It points, though, to the to the brilliance, maybe maybe un, un, unplanned, but the brilliance of, of the Trump-Netanyahu uh, partnership in the sense that they actually didn't win any military victories. What they won was a conceptual victory. Correct. And and just having that concept that we're going to crush anybody who messes with us and we're going to build all these partnerships and empower allies w- was sufficient to get allies. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, look, they had simple concepts, which was allies are better friends than enemies <laughs> and you know very simple but they no administration well, got be that good before. to your friends and bad to your enemies exactly right? but they also understood the dynamics of the region uae had a threat it had turkey and but it really had iran right next to it they were they were scared to death they were worried america wasn't going to do what they need to do so they were desperately looking for the strong horse who they could align with and israel's there and that's that's the dynamic that that netanyahu brought to the table and instigated, not only under Trump, even before, 
But it really finally came to fruition on Trump because he had somebody in the White House who, who understood this. And that fundamentally transformed the region. That's something the Iranians, the Turks could never digest and the Russians. Could never counter. And the Russians couldn't counter it. it because they can't. There's nothing you can do. Israel's powerful. Um, and the United States is powerful. If they remember that, then there's nothing can't, that can't be done. All right. Well, let us, let us uh, hope that people are listening and that uh, Israelis realize that power is not a yeah. bad thing. It's a good one. And we want to be more powerful, not less. And so should the United you, States. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. I'm going back to Israel next week. And uh, I'll see you in my bunker. Uh, <laughs> and it was great uh, seeing you, David. Thank, Thank you so you. much for joining us today. You, All right. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye.